Okay, well, I think, I think we'll start now. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this, this BICOM webinar. Um, I'm Sam. I'm the research associate at BICOM. And today we're very fortunate to have um, our director of BICOM, Richard Pater, who is based in Jerusalem, here to discuss the, uh, the latest developments on the Gaza border, as well as what's happening inside Israel itself, and also the significance for both the international and political fronts. Um, just for those who are not aware, Richard has been at BICOM for just over 11 years. And prior to that, he worked in the um, Israeli Prime Minister's office, where he spearheaded the engagement with the foreign press. Um, and I was told that this was during the 2005 disengagement. And um, Richard also has some military experience, and he actually served during the Second Lebanon War um, inside Gaza. So he knows the area fairly well. I won't say it's up to date, but he has some experience in um, and what the idea will be going through at the moment. So we're going to run this webinar as a Q&A format. Um, I'll kick us off um, with some questions. And some people have already sent in their questions, which I'm, I'm thankful for. If anyone does have a question they'd like to put to Richard, you can either raise your hand and, and I'll unmute you, or you can just write in the Q&A function and I'll try and give it, um, put it to Richard. Richard, let's start maybe with you giving us an, up, an update on, on what's happened overnight um, and today on, along the Gaza border. Sure. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. Well, yesterday was really an, an incredibly day, incredible day, perhaps unprecedented in Israel's history in terms of the volume of, uh, of incoming rockets that uh, Israel's home front uh, absorbed. Um, all in, uh, over a thousand rockets were fired towards Israel. We should note that it's a uh, close to 200 of them didn't even cross the uh, the Gaza border and fell inside the Gaza Strip but around 850 or so did cross over the border um, just to kind of to recap briefly it started yesterday with an intense bombardment around the uh, the Gaza periphery area the Gaza envelope spread out by early uh, early around midday early afternoon to Ashkelon which took a very serious uh, brunt of over a hundred rockets in a very short space of time and by the evening that same pattern had ex expanded onto uh, to Tel Aviv um, the Shvela the, the lowlands and kind of in the greater Tel Aviv area as well we should also note that the day before on Monday seven rockets were fired here towards uh, towards Jerusalem um, I think that was more symbolic than everything anything else but in terms of the the quantity and the mass of, uh, of the level of, uh, of rockets and the, we can also discuss afterwards the, the advancements that Hamas have made in their rockets as well caused a great deal of damage. Five people, um, five people died, um, uh, several, several others, I think uh, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, 20 or 30 were in serious conditions still and still hospitalized um, and lots of damage as well done to, uh, to private property and, uh, and vehicles, etc. as well as kind of sowing the what the definition of terrorism is, of, of kind of sowing terror into the heart of a, a civilian uh, population. This morning, we've seen, and we've seen kind of, we saw it through the night this morning, we've seen ongoing rocket fire. Again, at the moment so far, uh, focused around the Gaza periphery area, the immediate area. We saw one, one person was killed by anti-tank fire in uh, Kibbutz Netiv uh, Asara. Uh, um, it's just been announced that it was actually, a, that was an IDF soldier that was killed. They've just, uh, they've just released uh, those details. And Hamas are threatening to expand in this, at this time now, expand it to the middle of the country. Um, and so we're waiting to see how that now develops uh, as, the, as the day continues. So, so as, this, as this, kind of, this conflict is escalating more and more, kind of, what are, what's Israel's immediate kind of goals at the moment kind of concerning Hamas and the rocket attacks? What's, what's the IDF kind of operational playbook at the moment? What's it trying to achieve? I mean, essentially, it's trying to restore the quiet. I mean, according to the, to the, to the protocols of what the IDF said, following the security cabinet meeting, the, the, the first goal is to, is to prevent and, uh, and prevent the firing of the rockets and when they're fired, um, intercept. We've obviously, as, you, as people are familiar, we have the, uh, the Iron Dome um, anti-missile defense system, which I was talking to a, an IDF commander this morning, insisted that it's been incredibly successful, a 90% success rate um, with that, which has obviously also saved, uh, saved a great deal of lives. And I think as a secondary uh, uh, objective of the, of the IDF, it's to, uh, to target Hamas. This, is, this, this whole um, is instigated and has been uh, predetermined, led by, led by Hamas. And again, we can, we can talk about that in a, in a little bit as well. But to target Hamas uh, military, military wing, 
their infrastructure, their, their, their terror structure, and also their capacity to, uh, to develop and to build the rockets are also going to be targeted. I, um, I saw earlier that the IDF has said that they struck over 500 targets today. It might be even more now. Um, and whilst obviously it's, it's very unfortunate any loss of life, that there's been around 35 deaths in Gaza. Um, I believe that the majority are kind of Hamas and PIJ kind of militants. And what does that tell, tell you about like, the IDF's kind of operational playbook and its tactics? How is it conducting its strike compared to Hamas, which obviously just sends rockets over the border? Just well, no, no, clearly that's, the, that's obviously the, the main distinction that every Israeli uh, missile and, uh, and bullet that is fired is, is, is targeted and aimed at, 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 a, at a military and, uh, and uh, a, a, Hamas, a Hamas target and never, never at, the, uh, at any of the innocent uh, civilians inside, uh, inside the Gaza Strip. Um, very interesting two, two points I, I'd, I'd like to make. First of all, the IDF made an announcement kind of in, in the context of the rocket fire, the mass rocket fire to Ashkelon, then later to Tel Aviv. Um, the IDF made a point of announcing that they were, they were launching a campaign of 80 uh, um, aircraft uh, fighter jets um, targeting simultaneously in Gaza. I don't recall a similar announcement about that of the IDF of such a, a huge quantity that of, of the kind of, of the advanced fighter jets targeting at the same time. They made a point to say that they were sending messages in Arabic um, to the population of Gaza that every Hamas building was considered a target and that people should remove themselves. Um, similar tactics that Israel has, has deployed in the past of sending these warning messages both by phone message and by text message and then dropping a dummy bomb on the roof it's called the, the knock on the roof to tell people that they're going to be uh, that they that need to get out of the building because that building is about to be targeted with substantial uh, weaponry um and you're right i mean in the scheme of things of the amount of the the, the amount of uh, of of um missiles and uh, and uh, ordnance that have been hit along gaza relatively speaking and absolutely you're absolutely right every every innocent and civilian death is a tragedy on both sides. It has been very targeted. There's probably about 40 or so Palestinians in Gaza that have been killed, but we understand the vast majority of them are Hamas or Islamic Jihad um, operatives. And so that, that is, uh, that's very important to kind of, to bear that, uh, that ratio in mind. I wanted to ask you about kind of Hamas's tactics and its use of weapons and how you think, um, have you been surprised by kind of how many rockets they have sent over so far? Um, a question here that just comes through. With the Gaza border and this sea border closed, how is Hamas able to acquire so many sophisticated Iranian rockets? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think people were, I'm not sure the word is surprised, but, 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 but unexpected that their capacity had been improved so much. I mean, you're absolutely right that traditionally over the last few years, but we've had quite since the summer of 14, um, the, Israel's relationship with, uh, with Egypt, especially under President Sisi, has only improved and that, uh, and that Egypt had done a very good job at blocking a lot of the terror tunnels. Again, from my conversation with the, with the IDF this morning, um, he assured me that, 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 that uh, smuggling tunnels underneath the Rafia crossing and, uh, and the, what we used to refer to as the Philadelphia Strip, the border of, uh, between Egypt and, uh, and Sinai, um, Egypt and Gaza is still porous, is still able to get through and, uh, and, uh, and, and smuggling continues. There's also a, the scenario of uh, smuggling by the sea, despite it, the Israel having a naval, uh, a naval blockade there. Um, I should add kind of an internationally, international community endorsed um, blockade there. It's still not hermetically sealed and there are still, still ability to get through. And coupled with that, not only are they uh, able to, to smuggle in the weaponry, but they also have been able to develop and continue to develop their own um, built-in Gaza um, weapon-making factory. And they've been able to, uh, to benefit from technology and advice received primarily from Iran to, uh, to develop a higher capacity payload that have seen such destructive uh, results across Israel's cities. Thank you, Rich. Um, some people here have been in the UK have been talking about kind of Hamas trying to over overpower the Iron Dome, Israel's kind of anti-defense missile system. Um, we've seen kind of obviously rockets being landed in, in Israeli towns. Um, I think five civilians have been killed. Um, what do you make of kind of Israel's kind of tactics? And do you think they are succeeding in kind of neutralizing the Iron Dome? And how important has the Iron Dome been for Israel? So again, if I, if I repeat the statistic, the 90% success rate of the Iron Dome is pretty, uh, is, is pretty impressive. 
I mean, there have been suggestions, I mean, largely put out by Hamas, we should say, that they have kind of a, a, a new version of rockets which is able to intercept uh, or, or kind of uh, bypass the Iron Dome. The IDF deny that that's, uh, that's in existence, although there's no doubt that we have seen that you can kind of, as you mentioned, over simply outnumber the Iron Dome batteries by flying such a mass. And that we have seen the cases of, and I think they're the examples where we've seen such devastating effects of those rockets coming, uh, coming, coming through. So I think it's a, it's a mixed picture, but certainly the, uh, the Iron Dome still pro has proven its worth and has probably saved a lot more lives. If you think about the, uh, the, uh, the 850 plus rockets yesterday, plus another few hundred today, relative to the amount of, uh, of, of casualties and injuries caused, um, it's still doing a very important job. Where do you see the conflict progressing? Are, are we in the start of, of a new war? Are we already in a war that neither side has committed fully yet to? Well, listen, listen. This is this is the question, and I don't I don't profess to have any any prophecy to be able to to answer it accurately. I mean, I'll paint a couple of a couple of scenarios. Um, there is one, the positive scenario. But often, when we're talking about uh, these conflicts on both sides, we talk about uh, the 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 two the two sides establishing a victory picture, a picture that they can sell to their to their publics to uh, to present it as a as a victory. Now, Hamas clearly has has that already. The, the symbolic firing over Jerusalem, the unprecedented closure of the Knesset plenary on Monday afternoon for the first time ever um, evacuating the Knesset is a huge PR victory for them. And the mass of rockets on Tel Aviv last night, far more than the symbolic fire last time round, is really significant. Um, so on that level, you can see that, that Hamas have, have kind of have up their, have up their game. Um, and from Israel's side, it needs a similar picture. We don't yet know Oh, these things that have taken place that we're now learning about of various uh, Hamas commanders, whether that reaches enough of a threshold to say that Israel has really done some significant damage to the, to the, to the long-term aspirations of, uh, of, of Hamas. I have to be honest and say it doesn't feel like we are there yet. Um, and so I think we can expect this at least through to another 24, 48 hours. There is hope, this is very optimistic, but there is hope that uh, Thursday night uh, is Eid al-Fitr for, uh, for, the, for the Muslims, where Hamas may have an interest in kind of ending it so that people can celebrate their festival properly. And similarly, on the Israeli-Jewish side, we have Shavuot coming this, uh, this weekend. So there is also a hope that this doesn't drag into there. Um, but, but who knows? I think a lot of it is calibrated on the Israeli side, at least, for thinking about the number of fatalities and uh, the significance of, the, uh, of, of, the, of, of how the, uh, the, those rockets are absorbed. And, and whilst it's still in, crudely speaking, in single digits, Israel could fulfill its military objectives and declare that. But there is also a fear that this could, this could just uh, um, promote and, and lead to a further escalation. And we could, we could see ourselves at the beginning of a far more drawn out conflict. Um, so that's what we're waiting, waiting to see how it develops. And I think at the moment, we're measuring the, these things by, by the hours, not even by the day yet. Okay, um, I've got a couple of questions that come through about, about the cause or what's caused this kind of this new escalation. Um, I'll read a couple of two and you can answer them in one go. Um, could you please give some context about the forced removal of Palestinians from East Jerusalem? And what exactly happened at the Alaska Mosque? Did Israel need to have soldiers there? Were the Israeli soldiers provoked? Um, why did they kill? I'm not sure if they needed to kill, but why did they, they at least attack, knowing that the international outcry would, would create such a kind of a storm? So thank you, thank you for those questions, because I think they're really important to frame the, uh, the, the narrative that it's developing over this latest, latest round. I'll start by saying the most significant event of the last month was the, it was, is, is a, is, should be seen in the context of an internal Palestinian dispute. The fact that the Fatah called the election, raising expectations, raising hopes, and then cancelled them again, um, led to a great deal of frustration. Bear in mind, Hamas, who are physically, geographically isolated in, in Gaza, were looking towards this election, which again, they've waited now for 15 years for, the, uh, for this election to come through, to be able to, 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 to campaign and win, a, and from their perspective, win the leadership of the Palestinian people. This was denied them by the, the, the Fatah uh, incompetence and misgovernance, uh, corruption and their decision to cancel them. And that, uh, that deflation of expectations uh, kind of 
forced Hamas onto there to pivot to their other kind of known approach, which is the terror approach. I think it's very easy to say that we have, with hindsight, we can connect the dots. But if we're honest, there were people that were saying already Hamas in their own words were talking about um, the, the May the 10th being Jerusalem Day as the day that they would use this as the, the, the rallying call to, uh, to incite and, uh, and, and start that premeditated violence. And if I answer the second question first, that's what we saw on the Temple Mount, that as, as well as I will freely accept that there were amongst the people there on the Temple Mount, innocent uh, Muslim uh, uh, worshippers, also mixed in with them were, were thugs, basically, that we've seen the pictures of people having prepared with, uh, with firecrackers and fireworks and storing up of uh, boulders and boulders and rocks. And that's not what you do when you come to, uh, to pray. Um, the, the heavy handedness of the, of, of the police, and listen, the, the Israeli police are not perfect. But I think in that situation, it was quite clear they had to engage and, and, and not to allow a further exasperation of the, uh, of the violence and allow it to, to spill over to beyond to other, other areas in Jerusalem. In the context of, the, um, of uh, Sheikh Jarrah and the, uh, the, uh, the proposed expulsion of the, uh, of the Jerusalemites there, that was also kind of used deliberately as a, as, as a trigger by Hamas, it's again to take Jerusalem as the rallying point. To be clear, this picture has gone on, people may be familiar with this, but it's a long-standing legal issue, which by the way, the State of Israel is not even a party of this, uh, of this case. It's between um, uh, tenants, Palestinian tenants, that basically stopped paying their rent, that the contracts expired, and that the owners of the building with the, with the, with the, with the deeds uh, are an Israeli happens to be a right-wing ideologically motivated organization that was looking to kick out the uh, what effectively became squatters. Um, the state has now inserted himself into the story because of the high sensitivity around, uh, around East Jerusalem, and they've delayed that decision for a, thir for a further 30 days. Um, but this is not new. This has been rumbling in the courts, I think, even since the 1980s. Um, and, and so it was used now as a trigger point for the Hamas to deliberately kind of mold these issues together and use it as a rallying cry in the, in the, in the name of defending Jerusalem. Thanks, Ms. That's really useful um, background context to explain, uh, explain what's going on. I've had a couple of questions here about um, what's happening at some of the kind of the mixed Jewish Arab cities inside Israel. Can you just explain what's happening inside Lod, um, Afaham? Um, is this the start of a civil war? Um, another question is what is the implications of start of the insurrection in the Arab populations and cover and recent civil unrest. Um, so maybe you can just talk about kind of who is writing and why, um, how important sure. is this in Israel and, and what's its kind of implications? Sure, so beyond the kind of the scale of, uh, of the rocket attacks, which we can put aside for a moment, the, the development last night was incredibly worrying and worrying exactly as the question suggests because we're talking about Israeli Arab citizens citizens like myself with full, with full legal and, uh, and, 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 and civil rights, who decided, again, I would suggest that it was only a, a minority of, of, um, of perhaps even criminal elements that used this opportunity to, uh, to, to torch synagogues, to go into a Jewish neighborhood of a mixed city and set fire to dozens of, dozens of cars. And the police there on the ground were just not able to deal with that mob. And so they, uh, they kind of a, a panic signal went out. And uh, again, the army do not have jurisdiction under on, a, on in civil affairs within an, within a mixed Israeli Arab community so instead they brought in the uh, the border police which acts as kind of the, the, the quasi the quasi military in that sense to restore order it's a very worrying trend um, now having learned the lessons of last night they've actually just in the last few minutes imposed a closure on the city from eight o'clock at night till four in the morning tomorrow to not see not see a repeat of that and they've also augmented the security forces I mentioned, the border police deployed there and in other places as well amongst, uh, amongst mixed cities and amongst Israeli Arabs. And what's most worrying, and I think we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, is at the same time that as a result of the, the most recent Israeli um, election here, we were talking in very optimistic terms about the integration of Israeli Arabs into political society. There's even a possibility of, of RAM, the United Arab List, the Islamic Party, who are in involved in negotiations, both with the Likud that failed, and now with the, with the alternatives, with both Lapid and Bennett. And again, I'll repeat that because it's not, shouldn't be taken for granted. The leader of the, the, actually he's the deputy head of the Islamic movement in Israel, sitting down for coalition negotiations with Naftali Bennett, supported by a, a pro-settler party, 
is unprecedented in Israeli politics. So there is a real disconnect and a juxtaposition whilst they are come, coming and they are working. We've been talking over the last few days about the, the, the idea of, uh, of, of connecting Israeli Arabs, of integrating them, of even being part of a government to ensure that they get the, uh, the funding and support for jobs and, uh, and education and infrastructure within the Israeli Arab communities, which they so, so richly deserve. Um, at the same time, you have a, 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 I would say, I would like to categorize it as a minority of radicals within those communities who have kind of taken up the, uh, the torch, quite literally, of Hamas and, uh, and carried out this, uh, this, uh, this sh shocking behavior that we saw last night. Um, and I'll just connect the two because one of the issues that the Israeli Arab community and politicians have been campaigning on is the issue of, um, of gun crime and violent crime within the within the Israeli Arab communities. And we saw that crossover from criminal elements of using these weapons, which are so freely available within the Israeli Arab communities to potentially be used as with now in for ideological purposes and, and bund under the inspiration of Hamas. And that's a very worrying trend, which I said, we need to monitor it very carefully tonight and in the, and in the evenings uh, ahead going forward to make sure that it, we don't see such incidents again. I have another question, Richard, on the on the kind of the the uh, the conflicts going on at the moment in 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 Lod and, and Ramli. Um, will Israeli Jewish people ever be able to feel they can trust their Arab neighbours again? Well, let me let me tell you a couple of personal stories just from the last twenty four hours. Um, last night I was I was working late. The rest of my family were asleep, and and as I'm and as I'm there, I can hear the sirens going off. I mean, we haven't even discussed this, but the, uh, the kind of the, the writing that happened last night in downtown Jerusalem, just about five, five kilometers from where I am. And I could hear the stun grenade and I could hear the, uh, the distant uh, kind of, kind of uh, um, shouting and, uh, of, of, the, of the crowd. And I want to juxtapose that with my experience earlier last night when I was invited by some Muslim friends um, to, their, to, to break their iftar fast. Um, and so last night, kind of, and this is the picture that I want to emphasize, because Jerusalem, for people that know it, and certainly for people that live here, we are a mixed city in, a, in, the, in the most, in the realist sense. You know, we are, we are divided crudely, a third, a third, a third, a third are, are, are um, Israeli Arabs, Jerusalemites, a third are ultra-Orthodox, and a third are non-ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews. And for me as a Jerusalemite, it's incredibly important to engage and have a dialogue and relationship with both of the two other camps of which I do not um, represent. And so last night I had an opportunity to go to a, a, an iftar breaking fast, which I went to without question. And there I had some Muslim friends and there were Christian friends and Jewish friends, all of us, uh, all of us together kind of acknowledging the tension, but also appreciates that the way out of this is kind of by further understanding, by dialogue and, and, and by uh, recognition and respect. Um, and a second connected point I want to make, because there is also, as you're aware, a fantastic development in the last year of the Abraham Accords as well. And I also want to believe that the added role of connecting to the, uh, to the populations of the wider Gulf and I have to say, again, on a personal level, just before this call, I received a, a, a message from a, a new contact in Saudi Arabia, um, kind of wishing me well and concerned about how things were in Jerusalem. And I've seen similar messages also from new, new connected contacts within Bahrain and, uh, and the Emirates. And so there, there is, there's no homogeneity here, kind of whilst we have some who are clearly against us and are defining themselves with the Hamas cause and our enemies, I want to believe that there is still a, a large group of Israeli Arabs that do want that integration, that do understand that we can have a shared future here together. Richard, the sources of the rockets that are coming in and missiles that are coming into Israel, we know that a lot of it is Hamas, but where else is it coming from? Is any of it coming from unrefunded camps? Is it coming from other sources? So I think they, I mean, that the source of the, of the rockets, as I understand it, is twofold. Is one of what they, the components that they're able to, uh, to smuggle in, and essentially that is either Iran-made or kind of Iran-facilitated through that, through that smuggling network. And that, by the way, supplies both Hamas, but also uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad that perhaps have even closer ties with the, uh, with the Iranian regime. And the second is, is also partly inspired by Iranian technology is that, that they've learned the technological um, wherewithal capacity to build these to build these components inside of a kind of a, a homegrown military military uh, 
industries. Um, I don't suggest that there are that, that UNRWA, as much as we have issues and problems with UNRWA on other fronts, I don't think they are directly involved. Although, if we recall back in 2014, Hamas, as they've often does, use the use some of these no-go areas of international uh, organisations like UNRWA to launch rockets from there. We haven't seen any evidence of that yet, but that's certainly not uh, not impossible that they're using those sites uh, sim similarly today. So it, I'd make the distinction that although they are being manipula manipulated and used, they're not directly involved in the facilitation of uh, of rocket production. Uh, Richard, yes. Um, do you think, in some way, this is the whole thing is connected with the current impasse with the political situation? And if so, why? And, if, and regardless, how is it going to unfold due to the situation? Who benefits in the political mm. situation in Israel? A great question. I, I mean, first of all, let me take you back just a, a couple of weeks. If you remember the, the weekend of the, I think it was the 25th of, of April, around earlier in the beginning of Ramadan, we saw a, on a Friday night, 36 rockets fired over into Israel and another four during the, uh, during the Shabbat. And, and the, the, the IDF um, uh, chief of staff came to the security cabinet asking them for permission to enter a wide, extensive operation against Hamas. The IDF intelligence kind of called it earlier. They saw that this was being, being manipulated and, uh, and being premeditated by Hamas. And there, the advice of the military was to go in then three weeks ago um, and, to, and to make a point and to, uh, and to target Hamas then. Um, Netanyahu at the time and the, and, the and the cabinet turned them down. They called for restraint. Um, maybe that was for a variety of reasons. They didn't want to lead, lead, lead Israel to, uh, directly to, a, to an engagement. Um, and we can speculate other reasons of why they would want calm, but I think it's quite appropriate for a government to be risk adverse. As by the way, perhaps unlike Netanyahu's international image, at least domestically, he's always been risk adverse when it comes to uh, military uh, ad adventurism. Um, and so my, my short answer is, I don't think the two issues are connected. I'll answer your second part in a minute. But this time round, when the IDF, the security cabinet met um, about uh, just over 24 hours ago, this time round, there was a broad consensus that the IDF were given I wouldn't say carte blanche, but they were given pretty much a free hand to go and to, and to carry out and uh, and and prosecute this uh, latest campaign um, being referred to as Operation Guardians of the Walls um, in, 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 in whichever means that they deemed necessary. Um, security decision making here is not in the hands of one man. It's not at the behest of Netanyahu alone. Um, just like in previous rounds, there is a security cabinet of which some decisions require uh, a vote and an approval um, on other matters. And by the way, when the when the cabinet gave the, uh, the military echelon a, a full hand to do whatever they see necessary, they, they sat. They also put uh, uh, limitations on that. So, for example, that doesn't include the ability to go for a, a land operation at this stage. Um, but if they wanted to go for a land operation, that would require the consent of both the Prime Minister and Defence Minister Gantz, who are, despite their, um, their political rivalry, understand that, that it's necessary to work together in the cooperation and partnership when it comes to these, uh, to these type of decisions. Um, now, to answer your second question, how, do these, how, do, how does this latest conflict um, um, influence the, the, the political process? It's, I think it's complicated. I think that at best it's going to delay things. If we were, if people saw Bicom material and, and, and had heard us speak uh, um, on briefings last week, we were cautiously optimistic that what we refer to euphemistically as the block for change, the, uh, the two left-wing parties, the two centre parties and the three right-wing parties, were actually going to come together under the leadership of Bennett and Lapid. And, uh, and, and their last bit that they needed to really close out was, as I mentioned before, the deal to get them over 61. Those, those seven seats, seven parties together, give them 57 seats um, effectively. Um, and they needed just the extra four of Ram of the Islamists to get them over to become a majority. And so the conversations were at the final stage, would Mansour Abbas, the leader of Ram, would he be a cabinet minister? Would he vote? from the inside, from the outside. These were the technical issues that they were building up in the guidelines. In the current climate, it seems almost impossible to, to expect that form of government to be formed just yet. Um, 
but uh, but Lapid formally has the mandate until the 2nd of June. And so we very much hope that within the next uh, two or three weeks, this story on the security front will die down and that will allow to facilitate a renewal of those talks to allow a formation of a new government. There are lots of ifs there. Um, I'm, con I'm conscious of those caveats, but at least that's the, uh, that's the direction of travel unless we see things uh, change significantly. Is it the case that Benjamin Netanyahu ignored or took his eye off the ball in recent weeks? I understand the Shin Bet was getting intelligence about impending troubles, but Netanyahu was more concerned about his fiscal position, i.e. the recent election results. So yeah, again, I mean, I would make the distinction. Netanyahu is a very um, sophisticated, uh, wily, astute politician and, uh, and statement and statesman, I think it's conceivable that whilst he has his own personal agendas and, and his own political survival, he also knows how to differentiate and to assess the, uh, the state. That might be a, a generous reading of it, um, but at least I've seen nothing to suggest that, that, uh, that Netanyahu is making decisions on the security of the state based on his own predicament and uh, legal and political uh, um, um, impediments. Um, so I think, and as I said, there is a whole security establishment that however, however influential and powerful a prime minister is, he cannot do this alone. He has to act in coordination, in, in an appropriate uh, um, a consultation with the security cabinet, with the security chiefs, the head of the, the army, the Shin Bet, the Mossad, the defense minister, the whole of the head of military intelligence. There is a whole range of the senior echelon of which is kind of a joint uh, forum for, the, for those decisions. And the question is right, as we said before, that the, both the army and the, uh, and the Shin Bet had suggested and given warning in recent weeks that Hamas was really uh, reaching the end of its, uh, of, of, of its, of its period of restraint. Um, but again, the, the issue is, was not to force the hand, was to hope that they could be convinced or, uh, or, or the deterrence would still maintain and so that it wouldn't take us into the conflict that we, uh, that we clearly have today. Thank you, Richard, for your um, very comprehensive and all-embracing all review of the situation. Just touching on, on uh, the issue you raised with regards to RAM, independent of, of the difficulties that this must place Lapid and, and the potential coalition around him, Ram themselves must have um, questions about the possibility of them now uh, cooperating with a, with a, a, a grouping which uh, depends on their support. Uh, and if it depends on their support for that grouping to get into power, what are the chances of that group retaining or remaining in power when they depend so crucially on this um, Arab grouping? It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And I mean, I don't, I don't kind of, you can't, I can't see the future, so I'm, I can't uh, fully extrapolate how it will play out. But let me paint a couple of, of scenarios of what, we, of what we do know. First of all, again, the focus of Mansour Abbas and what's made it so incredible and such a, such a tantalizing partner for the Israeli mainstream uh, um, Jewish Zionist political parties is that Mansour Abbas is, is approaching these issues essentially without any ideological baggage, despite being from the Islamic party. He is, act, act, he is acting in a very um, pragmatic, realpolitik and transactional sense. His only agenda, he's not campaigning on a Palestinian issue. He's campaigning on an issue to improve the, uh, the, 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 uh, the socioeconomic situation for his constituency, to bring jobs, to bring extra funding, infrastructure, um, Etc. That is his only issue, and if he can bring that, then he's prepared to hold his nose and sit even with uh, with with ideological Zionist uh, right wing and, and and settlers. Now, there's no doubt that the the events of Gaza has complicated that because, as I said, on one side he's in negotiations with uh, with the Israeli right wing or the Israeli centre um, with Lapid, and at the same time, effectively, his political brothers, the Muslim Brotherhood, of which the Islamic movement are a part of are engaged in a, in a, in a bloody and vicious um, conflict. So this, this clearly is putting, is putting the question at stress. I would, I would argue that if, they, if they're able, even after this, still to enter into that political dialogue, then that gives a testament to some of the strength and the elasticity of, of that relationship. But to answer your second question, because I think it's a broader question of kind of, if, if this government does get formed and with such divergent parts, with having Naftali Bennett on the one side, along with Lapit, along with uh, Gidon Saar and Lieberman, kind of of the Israeli right, and the same coalition as the Israeli left, Nitzan Horowitz, and to a lesser extent, 
Merav um, Mikhaili from the from the Labour Party. What do these parties have in common if it isn't just the anything but Bibi campaign? And so to answer that, the hope is, and we'll know this if if we see developments and if when we see the the outlines, the government the government outlines that they will all sign on to, is that it will focus very much on non-ideological issues. It will look at uh, the, the broader socioeconomic expanse of Israel in reinvigorating the economy in a post uh, in a post-corona world of making those investment into kind of non-controversial issues as in healthcare and education across all the streams of uh, of, of education and as you know that we have a proliferated system here and the idea is that all the, all the partners would sign on for at least a year of stability. Now, in a normal functioning democracy, you might say that, you know, a year is not, a, not, not long for a government to form and to be able to develop these things. But after the, the kind of the two plus years of political uh, craziness that we've seen here, a year of stability, even if it is just one, one year, would be very welcome. And then we'll have to see and, and uh, expose who has the interest to bring this government down. Um, there's no doubt that it will be, it is fragmented and, and that when ideological decisions present themselves, it will be, it may well find itself that this government is, is stuck with inability and, and inaction. But I would say, let's, let's see if they can get it formed first. And even just the formation of it would attest to a great deal of, of goodwill and understanding and maturity amongst the partners um, that would give us hope that they hopefully can establish some form of stable government. Although I agree it is an incredibly an incredibly difficult task. Richard, uh, thank you very much. Question, I think this is the first crisis since the Abraham Accords was signed. Um, can you guess as to what role these new allies of Israel might be playing, probably behind the scenes, um, to try and get a ceasefire once you know, Hamas have stopped throwing their toys out of the pram? Um, it's a it's a great question and something that I've been discussing with uh, with with colleagues here um, because we've seen the 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 um, the official statements by both the uh, the Emirates and Bahrain have kind of resembled I would say kind of the the soft European left kind of uh, criticism about uh, heavy handedness over on Temple Mount in Al Aqsa and kind of a calling for 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 restraint and an end of end of violence pretty pretty bland non committal. Um, it's a very interesting point with whether these newfound allies do have any um, leverage over either of their sides to bring them back closer together. I would suggest that, that uh, I think their, 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 um, their leverage may be slightly limited. First of all, the, the, um, as important as the accords are, they're not yet fully cooked in, in a developed sense in which there are vested interests that they have levers to pull on the, on the ground here. And as I think I alluded to or mentioned earlier, there is a long parallel to the development of the new relationships with the Abraham Accord is a very strong strategic relationship, strategic alliance even, between Israel and Egypt. Um, and we've seen that really strengthen over the last few years. And, and it's really Egypt that, uh, that for, for prowess and also their, their, A, their geographic proximity, but also their ability to hold part of the, uh, the, the control of the border with regard to the southern border of Gaza, that they, they have the leadish, leadish, lead, leverage over the Hamas to enter and be the, uh, and, and be the, the appropriate mediators. Um, so I think it's more likely that Egypt, and I mentioned Qatar as well, although they are not formally part of the Abraham Accords yet, and they may well be in the, in the future, they're not there yet, but through the ability that they have gained by, by, by paying um, $25 million a month, I think it is, um, to the Hamas, uh, with the Israeli approval, they have kind of bought themselves a seat at the table as well. And that the goodwill built up over the last couple of years in relationship to the Israeli political establishment puts them also in a probably a, a more prominent position to play a role in trying to, to broker the, uh, the agreement. Um, but as I, again, I think I mentioned before, Unlike 2014, when Hamas came with specific demands over money and funding, and part of it was held up between this, uh, this slightly anarchic agreement that the Palestinian Authority still holds control over the, uh, the distribution of, uh, of water and electricity to the, to, to the Gaza because of the, uh, the Paris Protocols and various uh, agreements in place that don't really represent the ground, um, 
that a lot of this was being used as, a, as leverage by the PA to put the pressure on, the, on Hamas as well. That doesn't seem to be the demands this time. The, uh, the Hamas are, are, are using Jerusalem as their rallying call. They are using their Al-Aqsa and the, the other issues that we've mentioned to kind of to really push for, for what they would call a, a holy war and a religious war. And that's perhaps the most worrying and dangerous aspect of it, of how much that has traction and purchase within the wider Palestinian population and the Israeli Arab population that we've mattered, which make, really make, is a point to uh, the, the why Israel feels they need to... Uh, to extinguish this and create that, uh, that deterrence against uh, Hamas first and foremost militarily before you can move on to the day after. Keeping with the international domain, Richard, I have two questions here. How are the UN proposals to discuss the situation being regarded in Israel? And also, if you can comment on what you think, um, how you kind of regard the US position so far. Um, so I, I haven't, I have to be honest, I haven't seen the details of, the, of any UN proposal. Um, and I think it really, the, the devil will be in the details of who exactly within the UN is, is proposing it. Um, if you remember the outgoing, um, the outgoing uh, mediator on Middle East affairs, Medvedev had brought up a lot of good currency, both with the Israelis and with the, with the Palestinian side, in his vacuum, kind of as a personally or personal authoritative figure. I'm not sure whether the UN still have the same um, clout and credibility, although we'd have to see again, I haven't seen any text of what they're proposing, so I'm sure that it will be, it'll be judged on its merits of how, they, how that conforms to Israeli demands. Um, in terms of the Biden administration, it's fascinating. I mean, they're kind of lukewarm saying the right things, but hardly committal, and I think it's reflective of a, of a wider pattern of, of, of Biden, that he's far more concerned obviously with domestic issues and then on the international front really wants this doesn't doesn't want this 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 pain um this problem at all on on, on his plate is not something that they want to want to prioritize and that's it's being thrust onto them um my sense at least from this morning was that when the issue comes up later today at the at the un uh, general uh, security council that any nasty motion will still be uh, vetoed by the americans as they have traditionally done so at least that is in place um, but it's just not clear how much kind of uh, both legwork and emotional and practical investment the U.S. are prepared to make on this. And, and that could obviously be to the detriment both of Israel and potentially of the Palestinians as well. I wonder if we can just maybe go back to kind of the origins of, of how this all started to the West Bank. It's kind of been kind of behind the news now, obviously, with Gaza. But how do you assess kind of, well, first of all, what's going on on the West Bank? What's the situation? Is it fairly stable um, or is there is there still kind of pockets of unrest yeah i mean i think both i think i think that's a fair assumption fairly stable with with pockets of unrest i mean the the israel palestinian authority security coordination you know we had it's been a it's been a romance of off again on again over the last year or two but at the moment it seems to be seems to be back in place and at least uh, at least according to by the book it's in the pa's interest to keep that stability. Again, they've been deeply embarrassed by just by being exposed by how weak they are, that they're not able to carry out the elections. Again, a little bit of background as well, that although the Palestinians formally cited the issue of Israel not allowing East, uh, voting to go ahead on East, on East Jerusalem, um, that's been kind of dismissed by both Israelis and Palestinians, that it's quite clear that it was pure self-interest, that the proliferation and, uh, and splits some splinters within the Fatah camp, similar to what happened in 2006, was liable to replay itself and that Abu Mazen could have lost the election. That's the real reason why they pulled it off. So on the one level, they are suffering from kind of a heightened incompetence and, uh, and a lack of faith and, uh, and, and general dysfunction, um, even more so than the Israeli political system. Um, but on the, on, on the other side, clearly they have a vested interest to keep, uh, to keep the security situation as stable as possible. I mentioned earlier, we've had two incidences in the last three weeks of, uh, of, of shooting attacks within the West Bank, one that killed a young 19-year-old a young young 19 year old boy in a drive-by shooting and another shooting at a uh, at a base at the end of of last week that's those are the, those are the sort of markers that we should be very conscious of and very worried about those sorts of examples uh, um uh, proliferating and copycat attacks it's etc um at the moment that hasn't happened there's been localized rioting and kind of the familiar friction points at certain checkpoints um but it's been very much on a on a on a low um on, on a low flame at the moment, and obviously it's in the it's in Israel's and and and, uh, 
the, and the IDF's interest to keep it on that uh, low flame. I should also add that already last week, the IDF were able to bulk up um, the, uh, the deployments of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the IDF forces across the West Bank. And I think that's also partly uh, smart planning that has enabled to uh, be able to maintain silence and not silence, but relative quiet until now. Moving a little bit further north, I have a question here about what kind of what Hezbollah and, and kind of maybe Iranian proxies reaction will be in Syria. They, they say in reference to kind of Hamas's kind of limited success on getting kind of missiles through the Iron Dome. So what do you think kind of, do you think Hezbollah will, will kind of get involved in, in, in this conflict? And, and how much is, is Israel looking kind of one eye towards the north in terms of what it does on the Gaza border? Well, I think no. I think they're focused with 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 two eyes square. Obviously, it's a division of labour. The people that are focused on the Gaza border are, are squarely focused on that, and that's captivating their full attention. Whilst at the same time, no doubt, on a strategic level, they are fully conscious to be monitoring uh, Hezbollah and, as you say, kind of Iranian proxies on the uh, on the Golan as well. Um, as of right now, there is no indication or suggestion that uh, the Hezbollah would join. Obviously, kind of. Um, um, commentators and, and others of the uh, chattering classes here are aware that it's kind of the ultimate uh, nightmare scenario for a war to be opened up on more than one front and for Hezbollah to get involved with their far more superior capacity to, to, uh, to launch rockets and cause, and cause devastation. Um, I think it's also clear that, that Israel is still holding back other, their capacity as well in the locker room. Whether that, whether that scenario was to be borne out, it would look pretty pretty horrific all, all round and listen deterrence only you've only got deterrence until you know you've lost it um and at the moment it's holding and there's no suggestion that uh, that anything like that is, is is imminent but you're absolutely right that we all need to be incredibly vigilant um as to the uh, to that uh, that horrific scenario where a front does open up in the north as well from friends in israel there is a cynical mood as well that this is something Netanyahu um, is not instrumental in, but it plays into his hand because the, the, how can the other grouping actually now form a government? Yeah, I mean, th th thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of, the, of, of those, of, of those uh, conversations going on, and I've been asked it as well by, by, by friends here, and certainly there is certain aspects of the Israeli media that are, that are running that line as well. I mean, from my personal perspective, I, I, don't, I don't buy it. I don't think that, it, that even, even Netanyahu, for all the, the criticism which is legitimate over him, it would be, would be a cynical to play, to, play that, uh, to play that game. I think he understands that. And I also think, for his own sake, that what a horrific... Um, if he does eventually get to uh, um, leave office this month, if the government is formed, then this leaves a terrible shadow of his legacy um, that this is happening on his watch. And that's not, that's not how he wants to be to be remembered and to go down as a, as prime minister. So I think that whilst there is a those conspiracy theories have some legitimacy because of this unique scenario of the government formation and uh, and and legal issues that the prime minister is under, I, I personally I, I don't give it any 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 serious uh, holding. As I said, when it comes to the uh, the overall machinations of how to, uh, decisions are made by the security establishment here in Israel. Um, I have a question which is a little bit more forward-looking, Rich. It's kind of talking about once the conflict's over, will there be a kind of a continual rebuilding of Gaza? I mean, what are the challenges that Israel have faced over the last kind of five or six years in terms of trying to rebuild Gaza? Why has it just been so hard for them? What's, um, what are the challenges there? This is a great question because this is where, I mean, unfortunately things have been stuck for, for really since the, uh, the ceasefire agreement was, uh, was negotiated in, in summer 14. Um, there is an understanding that, uh, and this is kind of the crux of Israeli policymaking, that in order to bring longer term stability, there needs to be some form of economic rejuvenation, massive investment in infrastructure projects, a, a creation of employment, etc., across the Gaza Strip. The policy dilemma that Israel has is how do you do that without empowering Hamas, which is kind of the sworn enemy and, uh, and committed to Israel's destruction, um, without giving them the uh, kind of the, uh, the, the, the ability to, to take that as a, as a success. Um, 
The other kind of main spanner in this is that if you remember from 2014, um, Hamas still holds the bodies of two IDF fallen soldiers, which is considered a, uh, a, a base mark to be able to open up that in economic investment. They also hold two Israeli citizens who are considered uh, mentally unwell, one, uh, one uh, um, Israeli of the Ethiopian background, one, uh, one Israeli Bedouin. Um, both of them still are being held by Hamas already for more than, more than five years and seem to be off the public agenda to a large part. So those humanitarian cases are quite clear that there is, that is at the bottleneck of stopping any of the development. Um, but, but more so, I said, is the, is the wider picture of how do, you, how do you empower the people, how do you allow for any form of economic development that the international community might well be prepared to, uh, to pay for and, uh, and back up. Um, but how do you do that? I mean, there's the whole issue of what they refer to as dual usage goods. Um, but there is a list of goods that could be used. Fertilizer, for example, which have one level legitimate use within agriculture, but also can be very equally used for dual purposes and turned into, into military-grade um, weapons and explosives, etc. And whilst you have Hamas that is committed to, uh, to Israel's destruction, it's very difficult to move on. I'll remind you as well that, again, the other baseline for moving forward in any form of meaningful way is for Hamas to accept what was the international community's um, the quartet's three principles of, uh, of disavowing terrorism, recognizing Israel and recognizing previous agreements. And whilst that is still the stance of the, uh, the broad international community and should be supported, until Hamas are prepared to evolve, change, accept those conditions and then allow that investment, um, then we're going, to be, we're going to be stuck like this and we're going to be asking ourselves those same questions for, sadly, for years ahead. Great, Rich. Um, I think we'll I have one more question and then, then we'll end it. And it's, it's on social media. Um, maybe it's actually better for Luke for me to ask from our colleagues. But there, there's a huge... and overwhelming anti-Israel sentiment and pro-Palestinian sentiment, um, even amongst younger Jews. Is it, um, it is often ignorant, but any tips on how to stand up to it? Any reliable sources of, of information that we can point towards? So yeah, I agree. This is a very important question, and but less, less my personal um, sphere, because this is not BICOM's uh, um, chief remit, although obviously we are, we're all mixing in that same environment and we see some of the, the toxicity um, of, of, the, uh, of, of the discourse and what's going on there, certainly between the, uh, not even pro-Palestinian camp, but the anti-Israel, the, anti, the anti-Zionist camp. I would just say stick with the truth. I mean, we can, we can just push out the message, trying to be, unfortunately, we don't have a, uh, we, we don't have clear kind of one, one word sound bites to scream occupation, occupation as the other side are very successfully done. Our side takes, you know, we've spent an hour tonight we, we 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 need the time to explain the context the uh the, the the scenarios there is a lot of i mean in short we understand that it, that it is complex and so to try and play, explain some of that complexity to try to explain that israel has kind of the uh not not doesn't always is not perfect but generally speaking kind of acts within the realms of kind of established international international norms does not target civilians kind of puts a puts a high value on the, on the sanctity of human life. I mean, it's there as part of the, uh, the 12 um, core principles of the IDF of the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of purity of arms, that weapons do not, should not be used for any other means than, than kind of targeting those that, uh, that, that, that carry out terror and perpetrate it. So I think it's just to be true to those, to those core messages that we understand as being intrinsic to, uh, to Zionism and to the, to the Israeli ethos. And to con- there's no shorts and there's no there's no easy fix. Just to continue fighting the good fight and to and in and as many forum as possible, kind of putting that that information out there. And I would certainly add. You mentioned my colleague uh, Luke, we believe, and other kind of very very credible and serious uh, organisations within the Jewish community and the pro-Israel community. I hope that we will see in the next few days kind of more material that people can use. And certainly, I hope that if if Bicom can play a part in that sense, by using some of our materials and briefing materials, et cetera, to share with people online and to help educate and, uh, and, and raise the level of debate.